Never say never. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Here's one more, a good one. We haven't been to Isaiah 11 this feast yet, have we? The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind he shall shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men to go over dry shod. All right, I think we've got the water problem handled. We'll keep an eye on the weather if this persists and, and it keeps raining, uh, we may just remove and go back to Anatot tomorrow for services and then have our meal and picnic and everything afterward. So uh, that would be an alternative that we could do if, uh, if this continues. I think it's kind of eased up somewhat now, but what it does is it comes down this amphitheater and right down in front of the stage, and the only place it has to go is in this back door. I'm sure this was drawn up by an architect. Anyway, let's start over. They, they stopped the tape and started over. There will, people, will be people that want to uh, get the tapes after the feast. Uh, I was headed for 2 Timothy 3.15. All right, we've got the tape going now. Um, I've been commented before we got flooded, flooded here that uh, we started a series last year on Isaiah and finished it in about six months, and I want to start a new series today. But I want to lay a little bit of background, first of all, before we go there, and that's starting in 2 Timothy 3. Paul talking to them that he tells him, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now the only possible scriptures that Paul could have been referring to at this point would have been the Old Testament. And he says that the Old Testament scriptures are sufficient to make you wise to salvation. And then he said further, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So everything in the Old Testament is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is for teaching. So we can use the Old Testament for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So we can go to the Old Testament and, and obtain all four of those things, proper teaching, reproof, or rebuke, for correction or guidance and direction in our lives and instruction in righteousness. Now let's go from there to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And here I want verse 11. Now this, the context here is talking about an experience that ancient Israel had and what happened to them. 
uh, as a result of their disobedience to God. Verse 11, now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So every example, every historical happening, every event that is recorded in the Old Testament was put there specifically for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now this verse in 1 Corinthians 10 could never have been truer than it is this very moment. We are closer to the end than any people have ever been. We're closer than we were yesterday. So these things were written for us this very day. That we are to consider them. Everything that is written in the Old Testament. I want to give you one more along these lines. Now I know most of you here have heard me use these several different times. But beginning a new series which may prove to be somewhat lengthy. I think it's good that we reiterate this since we are going back again to the Old Testament. And let's understand that the Old Testament is just as pertinent today as it was in Paul's day or Isaiah's day for that matter. Romans 15 verse 4. For whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The implication is hope for salvation. So everything that was written back there was to give us hope of eternal life and salvation. So we cannot minimize what is there. We tend to sometimes depend, I think, too much on the New Testament, and it's easy to forget the old, but the old lays the background for the new. And what Israel went through in the past is what we still are going through today. Now, most of you by now are probably sick of me going to Hebrews 12, but I'm going there again today anyway. You can come along if you want. That was already mentioned this morning, in fact. In Hebrews 12, there is a key that is fully as important as the key Mr. Armstrong had when he wrote the key to the book of Revelation. Now, he had a key of understanding, and he wrote that little booklet to show that the knowledge he had was important to open up the book of Revelation that it might be understood. There are just certain things in the Bible you can't understand unless you have a key to unlock that understanding. And we missed a key for a lot of years that is clearly written in the Bible that is vitally important if we are to understand and be able to unlock a lot of the meaning of the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people say, well, we already understand the Old Testament. Not only that is, do we understand it, but it's basically been done away except for those prophecies about physical Israel and the destruction that is about to come upon it. And traditionally in the church, ever since I can remember, and I can remember back further probably than any of you, that doesn't attest to seniority or importance, just to old age and having started young, young in life. But we preached that Israel would fall. Now Israel is about to fall, and there's nothing wrong with that teaching, but there was some additional important information that we did not understand that has cost us dearly, 
in the last 20 years. That key to understanding is in Hebrews 12. Now, this morning we were hearing about the Old and the New Covenant. We were hearing that we have come to the New, that God has offered it to the few. He hasn't offered it to the world as a whole yet, but he's offered it to the few from the time of Christ and the apostles onward, and even made it retroactive to a few who are listed in Hebrews 11, among, I'm sure, others. But here he's discussing correction of the people of God, and that God loves us and does correct us. Then he talks about one who could not, would not be entreated or, correct, or corrected, and that was Esau. He had gone so far and profaned himself so far and taken the birthright that was due him so lightly and sold it so cheaply that he simply could not change his attitude. That sense of the cheapness and the lack of value was something he could not overcome, nor when he began to see the enormity and the importance of it, could he forgive himself and rise above his self-pity and repent and move forward. He did not realize that he was losing anything until it was gone. You never miss the water till the well runs dry. And when it did run dry, and he began to realize that, he lapsed into such depression that he couldn't get over it, and his people who have followed him down through the centuries, generations and generations from Esau or Edom, still are trying to get the birthright back from Joseph, and the Bible clearly shows that in the end time, Esau would prevail over Israel. And we have Esau or Edomites very much behind the scenes in the American government and the advisors to the government and to the other Israelitish nations wherever they are located on earth. And Esau is quickly putting himself in position to take vengeance upon Jacob very shortly now. It's already in process. But that vengeance, that vengeful attitude, that lack is still there. And the hatred is still there. It has not departed in all these thousands of years. Sometimes we think what we are doing is not all that bad or pretty innocent, but look how long the lack and the weakness and the sin of Esau has lasted. More than three or four generations, it's just gone on and on. But he sought repentance carefully and with tears. You know the story pretty well here. I'm not going to read it all for sake of time. But God, Paul says here in verse 18, For you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Scared them when God spoke. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. We are not come to Zion, he's saying. And he was telling these uh, Jews who had been converted, and even though they had been physical Jews, now were 
spiritual Jews, which is far more important. He says, forget Sinai. We don't come there anymore. All the principles come forward of the ceremonial laws and sacrifices and so on that were then, but they are not in effect today. Circumcision is not necessary. In fact, he says if you're going to keep that, you have to keep the whole ceremonial system. But Paul makes it very clear circumcision is not required, nor is the separation of women and all of those ceremonial things that went on. There is a spiritual principle involved, but none of that is in effect today. Some still believe it, and they better go out there and sacrifice some bulls and goats and sheep if they believe that, because that's part of the package, if you accept that package. But we don't go to Sinai now. Well, then where do we go? Let's understand. Verse 22, you don't go to Sinai, he says, but you were come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And he goes on and names other things, but I want to comment on them as we, go, as we come down this. You are come to Mount Zion. All right, we are New Testament Christians. What does Mount Zion have to do with it? Wasn't that a place in ancient Jerusalem? Yes, it was. Part of the capital, and it's where David's throne was. But somehow it's brought forward here into the New Testament understanding. So we're come there, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now we're told in Revelation 21 that the bride of Christ is the heavenly Jerusalem. I won't go back to Isaiah 60, verse 14, and Isaiah 62, uh, what is it, verse 10 or 11, I think it is, if I recall. But it calls the converted people at this time the city of the living God. Very clear in Revelation 21 that the holy city coming down is the bride. And we know the bride is the firstfruits of the firstborn, and that there are only 144,000 of them. It says of the 144,000 in Revelation 14, these are the first fruits. No more, no less, only 144,000. So we're come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and Galatians 6.16 tells us that Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. So the church today is centered in heaven at God's throne. Let's read on. And to an innumerable company of angels, who he's telling us, he's lumping together what we are today and who and what we have to do with, okay? There are angels involved with us. Unnumbered companies of angels. And then he throws in to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So he's lumping Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the church of the firstborn and the assembly together, synonymous with one another. All right. Which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, so he's lumping the church, Zion, Jerusalem, and the angels together with God the Father, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect or mature. 
So he's lumping us then also as a New Testament church with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Noah, with David, with all those in Hebrews 11, if you will. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So we're not in the old covenant now. We are in the new covenant with Jesus Christ, a new agreement. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood is far more important than the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifices that Abel offered. Now, let me pull this down to understanding. And that is that the church is linked with two key words here, Zion and Jerusalem. So, armed with that knowledge that Paul gives us here so graphically and so beautifully in these two verses, we can go back to the Old Testament. We can read the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, all the prophets of the Old Testament. Psalms is a book of prophecy. And when we see the word Zion or Jerusalem, we do not have to equate it to ancient Israel standing at the base of Sinai only. We have license here to also apply it to the New Testament church. And it is almost unbelievable how much understanding is shed when we can tie those Old Testament prophecies not only to the peoples of New Orleans, the peoples of New York, the peoples of anywhere in Israel, together with the church. In other words, what is happening to the physical nation very shortly now, and may have already really begun to happen, first had to happen to the church. God is not dealing with physical Israel first and foremost today. God is dealing with spiritual Israel. He's dealing with those he has called to the new covenant. He has not called the Jews to the new covenant. In fact, the Jews are completely cut off from God today, the physical Jews. Let's understand. Jesus Christ told the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, I am taking the kingdom of God away from you and giving it to a people you do not know. With that statement, he conferred authority or transferred authority from the Jews to Peter, James, John, and those who would succeed in the future. He had divorced Israel, and what does divorce mean? It means it's over and out. That's what divorce means. Done, finished, over. Not only did he divorce them, but he told them later on, I'm taking it away from you. Now, ironically, we have a lot of people in the greater church of God today who are looking more and more to the Jews for authority. Christ was very upset with them in his day. And they haven't gotten any better since. When that veil of the temple was rent in twain, when Jesus Christ died, any people who did not accept him as their sacrifice, as their Savior, 
were completely cut off. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and it gave anyone who would go through Jesus Christ access to the Father 24 sevens. Anyone who did not accept Jesus Christ was completely cut off and has no access to the Father. That may seem a bit harsh, but not, did not Jesus tell those same people, I think, in John 10, I am the way, I am the door, and no sheep can get in in any other way. If you don't come through the door, you don't get there. And he said, I have, another, I have sheep, other sheep, not of this fold. He was talking to the leaders of the Jews when he said that. He told them, you don't come through me, you don't get there, and I have other sheep. Which other sheep? Clearly, the New Testament church. So, we are the new Jerusalem. We are the new Zion. So when we read the Old Testament scriptures, which include Jerusalem and Zion, we can take them personally because he's dealing first with the church and he will not deal with ancient Israel or physical Israelites who are not followers of Jesus Christ until the millennium or great throne, white throne judgment, depending on whether they live through the millennium or are resurrected later on. They worship, they know not what. Only those whom God has called and opened the minds of today are a part of the new covenant and have access to God and have opportunity to be first fruits, to be a part of the 144,000 who will be the bride of Christ. That's all. No one else. I refer you to the series of nine on how exclusive is the church? It will answer those questions in detail and add even more to prove it. But all these scriptures then are inspired of God and are written for us upon whom the ends of the age have come. And we need to understand them. So today I'm going to go to the Old Testament, which we have already seen has been brought forward for us. Paul quoted it constantly. I'm going to go back to the book of Jeremiah. We did Isaiah, and next in line, time order, is the book of Jeremiah. There is much in here for us to learn, and there is much to look at from the standpoint not just of physical Israel, but of spiritual Israel, to whom it was written. You see, Jeremiah prophesied to ancient Israel, didn't he? He walked the streets of Jerusalem, he went to various areas, and he gave them warning of a destruction, calamity, and captivity to come. Okay? It didn't need to be written for those people. Jeremiah was there in the flesh, and he told those people what the prophecy for them was. So there was no importance of that being written down for them. The only importance would be for someone who came along after Jeremiah was dead 
And those prophecies that he had made for those physical people then had been fulfilled and they needed to be brought forth for a people to whom they would apply later on. Now, within the context of the book of Jeremiah, we have talk later on, and we'll get there, of a 70-year captivity. It is written, for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Okay? Physical Israel, as per Jeremiah's prophecies, did go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But if you look at all the prophecies of the Bible, and you look for another 70 years that will be visited upon physical Israel, in the end time, you can't find one. It's not there. There's three and a half years of tribulation and Israel being destroyed and taken into captivity. Not 70. Well, there's not 70 anywhere else that you can tie to that. It must have a different application somehow. Does anyone know of a prophecy of 70 years captivity for Israel at the end time, physical Israel? I see no hands. There isn't one. So did, was this just a story that Jeremiah wrote? Or does it have somewhere a different application and a different meaning? I won't let that cat out of the bag yet. We'll get to it. It may be several sermons downstream. But there is an answer for it. All right, the book of Jeremiah was written about 629 B.C., the best they can figure. And Jeremiah preached for at least 40 years. 40 years he preached to ears that would not listen, minds that would not accept, people who rejected everything he said. There are no miracles listed. There are no particular encouragements even for Jeremiah. He was called to speak these things, whether people liked it or not, and they didn't. At times, Jeremiah got frustrated. He muttered, he murmured a little, and even complained to God. The people wouldn't listen. And why was he just flapping his mouth for no good reason? It must have been at times truly discouraging and frustrating. I wonder how Herbert Armstrong felt at times when he had researched, studied, worked at, preached and preached and preached. You know, he preached a long time. And two, three, five, ten, I don't remember when all he said it, but years before he died, he was still saying periodically, you just people just aren't getting it. And we said, I wonder who he's talking to. <laughs> who is it? It must have been frustrating at times to preach and preach and preach 
and see that people were listening but not hearing. It was just sort of boom, in one and out the other. Jeremiah must have felt the same way because it, it shows up in here once in a while. Now, the word Jeremiah means appointed of Jehovah, or some say exalted of Jehovah. They're not sure of the exact translation. Let's start into it. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priests that were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin. The land of Benjamin started very close to Jerusalem, and the village of Anatoth was three miles from Jerusalem. Just a nice stroll. They walked a lot in those days, and three miles wasn't much. So his hometown was only three miles from the gates of Jerusalem. To whom the word of the Eternal came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now, you heard me mention a few moments ago that if the rain kept on and the water kept running in the door, that we might have to move out to Anatoth tomorrow. Why do we call it that? I mean, it's right here in the first verse of Jeremiah. Well, that's another one we'll get to, and I think it'll become very apparent why we felt that was an appropriate name for the little village that we are in the process of constructing. So he was a Benjamite in the land of Benjamin, town of Anatoth, to whom the word of the Eternal came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. He began preaching in the days of Josiah. I find that interesting in that Josiah was one of the most righteous kings that ever was in Israel. Josiah destroyed the groves, paganism, false worship, Baalism, and all those things worked very, very diligently to get rid of them. Now, I think he ascended this throne at age eight. And eight years later, when he was age 16, he was on a vendetta, a crusade, to destroy all pagan, evil culture and worship in the entire land of Israel. That says a lot for a 16-year-old boy, doesn't it? When do you guys think you need to stand up for God? Teenagers? Eight-year-olds? Even a child is known by his attitude and actions. I don't think there is too young, is there? You could start accepting responsibility for your attitudes and your conduct and so on in a godly fashion. You don't have to wait until your age of accountability 20. I'll rebel till I'm 20 and then I'll be good. Maybe, maybe not. You might be in a bad attitude so long you can't get over it like Esau. Who knows? I just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, you know, we're grappling, we're fighting to come out of Babylon. And here was a fellow who was quite young. And not only did he join the crusade, he led it to get Babylon out of their lives, to get Egypt out of their lives, to get... Nimrod and Semiramis and everything connected with them out. And we have plenty of that in our land today. 
But the other interesting thing about Josiah is that even though he was a righteous king, Jeremiah began to preach in his days. Now if you have a righteous king, and it looks like everything is going God's way, and this king is getting rid of Baalism wherever he can find it, why would you need to start having these dire prophecies of Jeremiah? Does that make any sense and fit? Let's go on. It came also, that is Jeremiah's word, in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, to the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, succeeding sons as kings, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So something happened the end of Josiah's reign. His sons were not righteous. Do you think God understood that that would happen? Do you think God long ago could have understood what would happen to the church today? Do you think God knew that it would split apart after the death of Herbert Armstrong? Do you think God could know a thousand, two thousand, four thousand years maybe before the end exactly the configuration of the church today? There is nothing new under the sun. Human nature has not changed. The way Israelites react has not changed. Even spiritual Israelites. Remember that the early New Testament church began with great miracles. It began with the Holy Spirit coming in a very dramatic fashion. Seventy years later, it disappeared. It went into great apostasy. False teachers came in, and the church had been blown apart and destroyed in approximately 70 years. It has been approximately 70 years since God called Herbert Armstrong, began to teach him the truth, a church was built, and now it is quickly disappearing over the horizon, scattered all to pieces, and people still falling away right and left. Ministers still going on, blowing and going, with the same attitudes, with the same pomposity, ego, vanity, and stuff shirtism that we have known all these years. A lot of it hasn't changed. Woe be to us. The ministers need to change, including me, and so do the people. But the ministers receive double judgment because it's their responsibility to change themselves and show the people what they need to do. And if that isn't accomplished, they will answer very sternly before God. Josiah was a righteous king. He led them in a right way. His sons were not and led them right back the wrong way. Then came the word of the Eternal to me, saying, verse 4, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, and before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified or set you apart, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. You think God knew what was going to happen? Before Jeremiah was even born, God said, I'm going to raise that boy up, and I'm going to tell my people their sins, and they won't listen to him, and they will go into captivity. But God does nothing except he warns through his servants, the prophets. God warned us, brethren, of what would happen to the church 
a long time ago, thousands of years ago, he wrote what would happen to Worldwide Church of God in detail. And we didn't understand it. It happened, it's still happening, and over 90% of the church still do not have a clue what has happened and why, and blame it on someone other than themselves. It was my fault, and it was your fault. What happened? I think we essentially understand that now. We've been at it from so many different directions. But how many books did God write about it? We haven't covered them all yet. And God says don't let any of his words drop to the ground. So we better cover them all, hadn't we? What better is there to talk about than our troubles and ultimately our triumphs right now? When we're in the throes of confusion, frustration, and a ministry who has not a clue what they're talking about. You see, had I understood, had they understood Hebrews 12, we would have applied all these scriptures to the church, we would have had an opportunity to understand our problem and where we were headed, and we would have had a, problem, a chance to solve it. But we didn't have the key to unlock these prophecies in terms of what they meant to the church. We only understood what they meant to physical Israel. So we would preach them and say, those guys are going to get torn up. Those guys are going into captivity. We didn't understand Ezekiel 5, did we? We understood physical Israel would have a third die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, a third would go into captivity, and some of them would come out of the pocket, and a small 10% would be preserved physically for the millennium. That's how we understood it, and that's all we understood. We had no clue that in the church, in the end time, one-third would die of spiritual famine and pestilence, one-third would die of a spiritual sword wielded by people returning to Protestantism, Judaism, and other ungodly practices, and that one would go back into captivity in the world. That only a small remnant of faithful would remain. We did not understand that the job of the two witnesses was first to put the remnant church back together, and it would only be 10%. We always thought they were just to go preach to Israel and to the world. Final warning. Zechariah 3 and 4 make it very clear that they are to feed all seven churches, and that a remnant will be put back together, that the latter temple under Herbert Armstrong has been destroyed and is still in the process of being destroyed, and the daughters that have sprung from it, which are also still coming apart at the seams, and that when those two begin to preach, that God will stir a faithful remnant to come to them and will form the latter temple, and that that temple will outshine what we understood and knew and worldwide. The story is very clear in the book of Haggai. We know where this is headed. 
because of these keys of understanding in Hebrews 12 and in Haggai and Zechariah. We know how far it will go. We know how many will be brought back in faithfulness to God. We know how it's going to end for the church. Most organizations are still clinging to the idea that one of these days we'll get a phone call and just our group will go to the place of safety. That the leading evangelist or self-appointed apostle or that prophet or whatever title the present guy might take to himself that was not conferred by God gives the word that organization will get up and go and all the others who are all Laodiceans not them, but all the others who are Laodiceans will be left behind. They don't understand that God will plant seven trees in the wilderness, just below what I was reading about the waters springing up in the desert in jest. Someone who's not here won't understand. We had a flood over on the other side of the hall. But God is going to plant a faithful remnant. This we couldn't have understood. We're going to see it confirmed in the book of Jeremiah. So God knew where it would all go. He prepared a prophet ahead of time. Does it strain our brain to think that he didn't know that this would all happen? Herbert Armstrong had an inkling. He understood in part. At least he understood part of the problem. He did not understand the solution. He thought he and Ted were Joshua and Zerubbabel. And it turned out they weren't. I think they were mild types of it. They were the latter prophet, uh, latter temple, I mean the former temple of the end time church. There's one yet to come to be built by the leadership whom God will appoint. I talked to him last in person in February, I think it was, of 1983. Now, I believe Herbert Armstrong to essentially have been a man got used of God to give us the essential truths. We've understood some additional points and some deeper meanings, perhaps, since. But the basic knowledge that we have is correct, and God revealed it to him. He had his faults. He had his problems. And the story I'm about to tell you, I think speaks volumes in this direction. That was in 83. He died in January of 86, so it was approximately three years before he died. We were going into his office for a conference, and he said, go ahead on in. He said, I've got to go take my heart pills. So he disappeared into the bathroom, and a few minutes later he came out, and he was very, very apologetic. He said, I know I shouldn't be taking those things. I shouldn't do it. I should just have faith in God. I should be able to trust God that he would heal me. But he said, I'm afraid to die. And the reason I'm afraid to die is because I'm afraid of what will happen to the church if I do. He knew the buzzards were circling. He knew the wolves had gathered. He knew there was trouble. He had been telling us for quite some time we're off the track. He had admitted that he was too old, too feeble to get the church back on the track. 
He admitted in that, just that little statement that he knew better than to do what he was doing physically, that he lacked the faith to put them away. And it wasn't fear of his own life that bothered him so much because he was truly concerned for the people. He was concerned about you and me. What would happen to us if he died? Now, in retrospect, do you think the man had some insight? I think that's a no-brainer. He died. What happened? He was not there. Our king was dead. Our counselor was perished, Micah 4. And we went down the tubes. There simply was no overall leader that we could look to. A lot proclaimed themselves that and proclaimed how important they were, and they're still proclaiming it, but God is not doing anything. God knew what was going to happen. Don't sell him short at all. Why didn't we? Maybe God didn't want it revealed yet. He wanted some of this to start happening. But he still did nothing that he did not warn through his servants, the prophets. Mr. Armstrong expressed uneasiness about the circumstances, but he didn't say the church is going to be spewed out. That was prophesied in Revelation 3. But Laodiceanism would be the big problem at the end, and God would have to spew it out. That included you and me. We got spewed too. It isn't those other guys, it's us. Well, what did Jeremiah say when God told him when he had been chosen? Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Now, he apparently was a young man physically, but no matter what age he might have been at the time, he could have still said that. I'm a child in understanding. I'm a child in obeying. I don't have what it takes. I'm not spiritually mature enough to do this. That's the way I felt as I began studying this in preparation for this series. Who am I to go through what Jeremiah wrote and attempt to explain it? I feel very inadequate and should. You know, humility really ought to come easily to us, shouldn't it? Why is humility so hard to come by? We have so much to be humble about, and yet we have difficulty being humble. We have nothing to be proud of, and yet that comes so very easily. Ah, human nature. But the Lord said to me, Say not, I am a child. For you shall go to all that I shall send you, and whatsoever I command you, you shall speak. You know, that makes it a whole lot easier. He didn't just send him out there on his own. He said, I'll command you what to speak. That's how I came to grips with this. I don't have to be a prophet, see. 
All I have to do is read the words of the prophets. That's all I have to do. Because God wrote it thousands of years ago, and it fits perfectly today, is pertinent to every day of our lives and every thought we think. So God did not necessarily need to raise up someone in Worldwide Church of God and tell the church it's going to fall apart. All we had to have done was read the words of the prophets and understood them, and we would have known what was going to happen because it's all written right here. You've heard the series on the Minor Prophets. I hope you've listened all the way through it. And in that, we came to astounding knowledge that all of this was written first and foremost to us, the church, secondarily to physical Israel, and it will happen first to the church, and we already see tens of thousands dying of spiritual famine and pestilence by the spiritual sword, and there's only going to be a 10% faithful group left. That's all. The rest will go into tribulation. Armed with this knowledge, we should have a leg up on doing something about it. Will we, brethren, be as Israel has always been? That is, hear it, maybe even believe it, but do nothing about it. 10%, small 10% at that. When they hear it, we'll believe it, and we'll respond to God, and he will send them where they need to go. You can watch that. It will happen. It's in the Scripture. I'm not going there today to prove it. I've already been there. Listen to the minor prophets. So you don't have to worry. It's all written down. You just have to have the keys of understanding. That's what we were lacking. God opened our minds to see that, and now we can go back here and read this and understand how it applies, first of all, to us, second of all, to our physical Israelite brothers around us. So he said, I'll command you what to speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Eternal. And we'll find that God did deliver Jeremiah on several occasions. Then the Eternal put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Eternal said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's something, that's a prayer I find myself personally praying almost daily, and certainly, I don't think it ever fails that I pray that before a sermon. I don't want to speak my words to you. What good would Daryl's words be? I'm just a man. The only way I can stand here and speak to you and have it do any good and not just be a lesson in futility is if God's words come out. I'm nothing. Jeremiah, because God put words in his mouth, was nothing. It was the words God put there that were important. Why is it we in the ministry got puffed up about our own importance and have become so important that we almost forget God? We're here to glorify God not ourselves, our positions, or our offices. 
If we're speaking for God, we'll be speaking God's words, not ours. We'll be bragging about God, not ourselves. For we truly are nothing. And if we don't think so, we're deceiving ourselves. Verse 10, he gave him a lot of authority. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Now, he gave that latitude, that authority to Jeremiah in terms of that physical nation right there, that day, and he did make some incredible prophecies about what would happen. Now, he started this in Josiah's day when everything was rosy and everything was headed the right direction. And he began to teach these people, Jerusalem is going to fall, it's going to be destroyed. So God gave him the understanding of that, and he preached it, and it happened within his ministry. He also said that he was given authority to build and to plant. And we'll find as we go through here that there are some prophecies toward the end and even scattered throughout, whereby he said there would be a gathering, a return from captivity, a spiritual renaissance and renewal. So he also presided over building and planting. Now I'm going to take this one step further. Since these prophecies apply first and foremost unto us upon whom the ends of the earth have come, Jeremiah had the authority from God to write this and it would carry through for thousands of years and happen to the early New Testament church and it would happen again in the same sequence to the end time church. We'll get to that 70 years but I've already mentioned that that early New Testament church lasted 70 years and blew up. The end time church has lasted 70 years and blown up. Is that coincidence? Or were the prophecies of Jeremiah written all those years back, carried through and fit perfectly with what has happened today? So everything he writes here has to do not only with then and what will happen to the physical nation very shortly now, but what is happening to the church right now is in process. So we need to listen up to what Jeremiah has to say. He's the prophet. Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a rod of an almond. Can be translated a branch of an almond tree. There are other scriptures which show God is going to raise up a righteous branch here at the end. That's in Isaiah, other places. Uh, that is speaking of Zerubbabel, who will also be a signet to all the nations. Zerubbabel, who is the leader of the two witnesses. But this rod of an almond, why does he say an almond tree? Why not a peach tree? Why not a date? Why not a pomegranate? Because trees go dormant in the winter. And the almond tree is the first to wake up in the spring. It is the first to put out new leaves and shoots. Well, Jeremiah was the first to understand 
what would happen, and to be able to bring it to Israel's attention. Everyone else was dead, still in the middle of spiritual winter, if you will, today. But God began to speak and put out shoots of understanding from that which appeared dead, and it was the first to wake up. Then said the Eternal to me, You have well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. That backs up the explanation I just made of the almond branch. Starts early. See, God is going to start early to finish things. The almond tree starts early. So there has to be a beginning of the understanding. There has to be a fulfillment of the prophecies that are to follow in this book. And the word of the Eternal came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? Oh, he saw a rod of an almond tree, so something's going to start early. It's going to start soon, before anybody else wakes up, while the other trees are still dormant. But he also saw a seething pot, a boiling pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. So here's this huge boiling cauldron, and its face to the north. That is, the boiling the bubbles, the troubles, would come from the north. Out of the, uh, then the Eternal said to me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. Now, yes, the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger, as shown in, I think it's Isaiah 6, right through that area. But we've looked only to the Assyrian so much in the church. But the Assyrian is not the only one involved. All the families of the north. Now this had to be, has to be understood from the perspective of the geography and the inhabitants or inhabited part of the world in that day. Jerusalem was the center. And that which came to the north of that is what we're talking about. Well, who was to the north? The Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was there. Uh, that is also the capital of Babylon, the Chaldean Empire. It also was the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire in Shushan. So all those peoples from the north are included. It is presently the capital of Iraq, Iran, if you will, Ishmael. So all these peoples were to the north of Jerusalem. And we find in Psalm 83 and other prophecies that there is going to be a great coalition against Israel. Not just the Assyrian. Now, an Assyrian may very well lead it. But if we're looking just to Germany, we may be in for a very rude awakening. This is going to be far larger than that. Do you think today the Germans are the only ones that hate us as a physical nation? Give us a break here. Name a country that really does like us. Well, you know, as American might say, well, Brits, the Brits like us pretty well. Well, duh. They're us. <laughs> We're Ephraim and Manasseh. They also are hated by all those other people. I've traveled considerably in my life, been to every continent but Antarctica now, 
And I haven't found too many people other than Israelites that like us at all. When I first started traveling approximately 40 years ago to other countries, I was not uneager to tell people I was from America. Now I try to take on a different accent or <laughs> something. It's changed in the last 40 years, believe you me. And it's changed a lot in the last two or three years. It's getting worse quickly. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. So we better expect, on a physical level, to have enemies among the Ishmaelites, among the Babylonians, maybe moved to Germany today, Austria, various other places. Maybe we'd better expect uh, anyone who was Babylonian to be involved. Basically all the Gentiles. There were some Gentiles to the south, Egypt, Ethiopia, and so on. But we'll find even they are involved. So it's basically the whole world coalition funny, isn't it, in a way that we have been the ones preaching about a coalition against so-and-so and a coalition against so-and-so. We've been the hammer of the whole earth, hammering anyone we want to. And we'll read about that in Jeremiah too. But God says, doesn't he, that that usually comes back on you, that you perpetrate. What goes around comes around. We're going to have a coalition against America. And we also have now a coalition against the people of God. We have that on a spiritual level. There are false shepherds and wolves among us who do not understand, may think they do, and some are just downright evil and want to destroy. But we're also going to have all these nations who come against too. Now, it's already been said that they will destroy and take captive the physical nations of Israel. But if you read the book of Revelation, it says only the faithful people of God will stand against the beast. So it's roughly going to be 6 billion people against 7, 8, 10, 12,000 people. If you take a 10% remnant of what there was in Worldwide... You can't have more than, at the absolute outside, 15,000 people. We had about 150,000 at the feast, the final years before it started going downhill. A lot of them were children and unconverted mates and various things. We never had 144,000. You know, we kept looking to that. We're going to have 144,000 people in the end will come. There never were 144,000 at one time converted. Now, some had died who were, who probably will be in the first resurrection. But we didn't understand. But if God called roughly, let's say, 150,000 people here at the end, that's many called, because he called many at the end. So his definition of many is what we had, called under Herbert Armstrong. Few chosen. He is in the process of choosing today. And we're in the process of being examined to see if we will fit in. Because we're here doesn't mean we'll be part of that. Besides that, there's only roughly a little over 100 of us here. 
And that's not near enough to be 10%. So if you think it's us, you've got another thing coming. We are candidates for it. We've been given the opportunity. If we heed, then we will be included. But nothing is guaranteed. I will not stand here and even begin to tell you just because you listen to me, you got it made. There are a lot of ministers who are doing that today. If you just follow me, we'll march right into the place of safety in the kingdom of God. Follow me only as I follow Christ. And believe that. Because I don't always follow him. I'm working at it, but it doesn't always happen. I have my weaknesses, my faults, my failings. But I hope God will use me to preach his truth to his people in spite of it. It isn't of my choosing. There are, there are other things you can do that are a whole lot more fun than this. Believe me. Okay, these kingdoms of the north are going to come, says the eternal, verse 15. And they shall come, and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. It wasn't long until this began to happen when Babylon came against them. Just a matter of a few years. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. We have a culture today that is an idle culture. We have created things that have gotten between us and God. All kinds of things, all kinds of activities, all kinds of entertainments. Uh, this is a nation that is filled with idols. And the biggest idol is self. Our society has told us we should always take care of number one. You deserve a break today. You are important. You are number one. We have built up idolatry of self. We have deceived ourselves as to our true spiritual standing before God. Do you think that Revelation 3 about the Laodiceans is not all about self-deception? When you think you have need of nothing and you're dressed in fine righteous garments and God says, you don't understand. You're wretched and naked and blind. We've made idols of ourselves in the church, spiritually, thinking we are what we are not and not understanding God because we misunderstand ourselves. Verse 17, you therefore gird up your loins and arise and speak to, speak to them all that I command you. Screw up your courage, he said. This isn't going to be pleasant, but say it. They won't like it, but say it. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound you in front of them. Don't pay any attention to the look on their face. Don't pay any attention to their attitude. Just say what I want said. There are other places which tell us that they want to hear nothing but the smooth and easy things and that it's somebody else, not them, that's the problem. He was to go to Jerusalem, and remember that's a type of the church, according to Hebrews 12, 
and tell them their problems. God told Isaiah to cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins. Those who are converted today are the only ones who are the people of God. The rest are consigned to the millennium or the great white throne judgment. Those called out, converted, separated from the world are the only ones he's interested in at the moment for salvation. He isn't opening salvation to the whole world, just a few. And it wasn't because of how important or righteous or good or great or smart you and I were that we were caught. It was of the mercy of God, and frankly, because we are and were, repeat after me, weak and base. It shouldn't be hard to be humble, but it is. There was a song about that some years back, Mac Davis. Started out, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> Couldn't even stand to look in the mirror. He got better looking each day. It just went on and on. Kind of a cute song in a way because it sort of poke needles in us, let some of the air out, I hope. Don't be dismayed at their faces, lest I embarrass you in front of them. You know, he was under a threat from God. You better speak this whether they like it or not. Verse 18, For behold, I have made you this day a defense city. I'm putting a wall around you, Jer uh, Jer uh, Jeremiah. Uh, they can't touch you. I've made you an iron pillar. He's going to make him strong before them. And brazen walls against the whole land. He would be given God's protection wherever he went if he would preach the truth. Otherwise, he would be greatly embarrassed in front of all these people. And God would have seen to it that his embarrassment was complete. Against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. No one is spared. It's easy today for the ministry to blame it on the people who wouldn't do what they said. And it's real easy for the people to blame it all the preachers. But we all have to blame ourselves. Because God covers us all. And they shall fight against you. He just lays it out to him. This, this is what's going to happen, Jeremiah. They will fight you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Eternal, to deliver you. Now, Jeremiah, you know, as he went into this, it must have been perplexing and frustrating. It, all I'm doing is telling you the words of God. Why won't you listen to the words of God? God told me to tell you these things and... Why are you fighting me? Must have frustrated him to no end at times. But God at least warned him ahead of time. If you preach my word, they'll fight it. They do not want to hear my words. Do you think most of the church is ready to listen to a sermon like this today? Now, in some organizations, you could go back and start reading this, 
as long as you applied it only to physical Israel and not to the congregation, you might get away with it. And some are. Preaching very strongly how Israel's going to fall. But they're ignoring, to great degree, the fact that spiritual Israel is falling and that they, the ministry, have an awful lot to do with it. You won't hear them admit that, will you? And you won't hear them preaching to the people that they are the problem. Why? Numbers and money. Those are the big keys. They want great numbers of people so they can feel that they are important. And they want lots of money so they can do their work and call it the work of God. And they talk about numbers of people incessantly. And they talk about giving more money constantly. And they browbeat God's people. And it's sad. The ministry right now ought to be humbling itself. Because of Ezekiel 34, Malachi 1, and we're not very far here from Jeremiah 23. And powerful, powerful scriptures about the ministry today. Now, if you think for a moment, all these scriptures don't have to do with the church. Why is it that you, General Assembly of the Firstborn, think that Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Malachi 1 apply to today's ministry? You know, there was a time we didn't even begin to think that. There was a time 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when we would read Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34 and say that was the Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, the Mormons, and whoever else. Didn't have anything to do with the ministry in the church. If you had asked 30 years ago, taken a poll within the church of God about what those chapters were talking about, they'd have told you that's his world's churches out here in Israel. That's those ministers out there. Our dearly beloved ministers couldn't have been involved, could they? Not 30, 40 years ago, no way, Buster. But if you took a poll today and asked, is that referring to just Methodists and Baptists, or does it include ministry in the church of God, the polls will have changed. A vast majority will tell you that those scriptures apply to the ministry today. And I'm not talking about those guys out there. I'm starting right here and moving toward them. All of us. I was one of them, and I guess I still are, but I'm not trying to be like them anymore. I'm not trying to be like I used to be anymore. It has to start at home. So if you're having trouble grasping that this is all talking about the church, then you better reanalyze those chapters we just talked about, which are about the ministry, and which you have applied to the church today. Because if those apply, so do the rest of it. What time is it? I'm done, aren't I? Well, we had 15 minutes of flooding. You got to get up and move around. But that's the end of the chapter. We'll stop right there. 
And uh, I, if, if it doesn't, man, this is kind of hard to decide. If it rains all night, 